0: This is Wrestling, with your host, Isaac Scamlin. Hi, everyone. I did not forget about this podcast. It's just hard to find guests sometimes, okay? At any rate, I just wanted to remind you quick to check me out on social media with the links below to get updates about the show. Joining me for this episode of Wrestling is my former college classmate, Eric Hockinson. Here Eric described his journey from evangelical to nihilist to Eastern Orthodox. And us compare and contrast Orthodox and Reformed theology and practice. We wrestle with election and free will, the use of icons in worship, and the state of the American Evangelical Church, among other things. This was a great discussion. Eric had questions for me, I had questions for him. This conversation left me with plenty to wrestle with, and it should for you as well. Without further ado, here's Eric. Hi, Eric. Welcome to Wrestling.
1: Thanks, Isaac. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, it's been a while, you know, we've both been come out of college, and we've both had our own paths. I I heard you got quite the story since then.
1: Yes, that's right. Probably a very different perspective than the last time we spoke. A lot, yeah. has, uh, a lot has developed, I think, both in my personal life and in the world outside of me that has influenced my decisions.
0: So what have you been up to?
1: Well, so I think with regard to... Uh, my, uh, my professional life, i been working from home now for the last three years, which has given me a lot of free time to exper- experiment and learn and develop my thinking on a number of different issues. Um, in my spiritual life, as we've discussed, I've gone through quite a transition story. As I pitched it to you, uh, I moved from evangelical Christianity to nihilism back to Christianity, but this time Eastern Orthodox Christianity.
0: All right. Would you mind just walking us through how exactly this journey came about?
1: Yeah, most definitely. So I'll break it up into those three segments, and I'll start with the first one, my time as an evangelical Christian. So this is probably the least important aspect of the story, but I was raised in a... A rather pious and devout evangelical family every week was a week where there was going to be opportunities to go to church more than once and that was the expectation in my house anytime that there was an event or anything of the sort going you're just to be there now the reason I mention that is because church at the time growing up and even into my late teenage years felt like more of a uh, an obligation for working or volunteering or something, I never quite got the point because I would go there and the setup and structure of my church was not overly nuanced, and so I would oftentimes hear about personal finance or things of the sort during the homily and not find a lot of connection with it as I continued to get older though, into my freshman year of college. I started to kind of find a breakdown of what I thought to be the truth of Christianity and that started with a critique of the scripture itself and so I was early I was sorry not early but uh, especially influenced by people like Bart Ehrman and Dale B. Martin uh, what you would probably call agnostic or atheist textual critics that have been somehow popular in a very weird publishing fad for a number of years here. And I saw this as kind of a breakdown or the pulling of the rug because for most evangelicals, a fundamental idea is that the scriptures or insofar as we have them, are perfect in their original form. But what I came to learn is that we don't have the scripture in the original form. And oftentimes we don't have the copies of the original or the copies of the copies. And if you get to the fourth copy of Separation, we'll have fragments and so on. And so I saw this as a major breaking down of what I thought to be a fundamental claim of evangelical Christianity. But in addition to that, I had found myself intellectually unable to grasp the concept of of an eternal hell and then two, uh, a very classic and probably the best argument against theism in general is the problem of evil. I could not find myself working out of this corner, not only with evangelical Christian theology, really any other Protestant theology. I felt trapped and I found myself quickly pushing away from it and uh, beginning to confirm my, my uh, thinking on these issues by only searching out sources that uh, affirmed these and, and pushed me further. So I'll it's let you tempting, jump in there. Yeah. It,
0: in any situation and it, it really is a battle to remember this. It's a battle to remember just how fleeting we are. We see it throughout the Psalms that we stand before God as a breath. I think about the quote from the missionary C.T. Studd that says, Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And believe me, it's a battle to remember this because there are some times that all I want to do is just go down a YouTube rabbit hole, or, or I might think, man, if I just had a bunch of money and I was able to just do cool stuff all day and go on a bunch of vacations, that would be the life. That would be the way to go. But we're called to be elect exiles in this world. As the pastor John Piper says, Jesus saves from the American dream. You know, our lives are not just about accruing money and obtaining financial security i mean those things are good they're blessings you shouldn't be irresponsible with your money but but it's not about us and i'll admit i often have a hard time swallowing that yeah that's
1: that's interesting and it's it it seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong here but In Reformed theology in general, there is is an exceptionally strong emphasis on there's nothing you can do to earn or deserve salvation.
0: I agree with that. Yes. Makes sense. Yes. Although recently what I've been meditating on is the Reformed view of sanctification. I actually recorded a previous episode about this, back in episode 9, I discussed Calvin's writings on sanctification and the implications that that those who are in Christ have been unified with Christ. It's like what Galatians says when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me so i really do think that uh, it's a paradox right because on the one hand we don't do anything to earn our salvation we were dead in our trespasses but god being rich in mercy has made us alive together in christ we're we're saved by grace through faith not of works so that no one may boast and that's critical to understand and that itself really is it really is a lifelong process just to have that teaching drilled into your head because our instinct is to just want to give ourselves a reason like i know so often i just want a reason to pat myself on the back it's that self-indulgent prideful instinct we just want to feel good about ourselves that's you could really argue that's the greatest need we have as humans, is some kind of acknowledgement, some kind of belonging. But we are defined find that entirely in Christ and, and, and it's offensive to the natural mind. It's the scandal on the offense of the cross, described as a stumbling block for many. So we have that on the one hand. But on the other hand, following Jesus is costly. Jesus said in no uncertain terms, he told us to count the cost. And those who are in Christ are expected to bear good fruit. Those, the branch that does not bear fruit will be cut down and tossed into the fire. So, The Bible does not teach that you say a prayer once and then go on and live however you want. There's no such thing as Sunday-only Christianity. It is, it's who we are. Following Christ, it's a fundamental change in your identity. And we talk about identity all the time in our culture. It's just... It's, it's the, it's the latest fad of the day.
1: The highest good.
0: Yes. But, but yes, to be united with Christ, it's just, really, it's a fundamental change in who you are. That's how I would describe it. And contrasting that, the we do nothing yet yet we're called to leave everything and follow Christ, it's a paradox. I'll admit that. So let me ask you this then.
1: What can you say of the people that got unlucky in the most eternally consequential way? Mm. This uh, kind of aligns... The non-elect, you mean. Right, uh, the derelict. It kind of aligns with my... I'm thinking my second point and then the problem of hell and it um, the, I, early on at least in my college years I flirted with reformed theology and I found myself for lack of a better term repulsed but maybe you have something to offer that I don't because mm. if you have to explain why a certain proportion of the population, Is going to burn eternally in hell it doesn't really help the problem if a significant proportion is completely outside of the decision-making process they're just being created to burn in other words sure Mm -hmm. they might live a life to some extent but there's nothing they can do to work their way out of it and so it paints God in a very nefarious and malicious way. Mm -hmm. As a, as a reformed thinking Christian, how would you kind of unpack that and work through this particular problem?
0: That's a good question. And believe me, it's a tough one. You know, you've probably heard the term cage stage Calvinist before. Like we were describing earlier when you're all cagey and, You just need to affirm your worldview, and and you're completely hostile to any kind of discussion. Well, before that, every reformed Christian goes through a period of goes through the denial stage of being reformed, where you first hear this idea and and you're just like, this is insane. This is not the God I know. This is crazy. This can't possibly be true. So, as for how I deal with this, one thing I will say is that I would tend to agree with the teaching of St. Augustine about the original, about the first sin, in that Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, because they did not have a sin nature at that time, they did freely choose to eat of the forbidden fruit, and thus to set humankind on a sinful course, and every person, one, was born into Adam, as, as is described in Romans, that death entered the world through one man, that being Adam, which is why Christ is described as our second Adam, but the reality is, we also have all willfully rebelled against God. I think, I do think it's a bit more complicated than than God ordained our desires and caused us to sin. I'm still trying to work through that, admittedly, just what is the exact extent of God's sovereignty, if that makes sense. I'm still wrestling with that, but, but I think because everyone has willfully sinned. So at that point, you've already set yourself on a path that you've rebelled against God and you're literally at his mercy. So God doesn't owe us anything.
1: So, sorry, if I could, I could cut in here. So you are picking a, at least segment of this view that's, a little easier to it than Calvin's. Uh, we've talked about this in, in Calvin's third section of the Institute. He argues that even the first sin was preordained by God. You are taking Augustine's position from which he derived and built upon this. This is probably a product of my ignorance, so I'm asking here honestly. When you say that humans before that is adam and eve when they were free freely selected or put in the garden if the ultimate objective is to show god's sovereignty and they were able to do that freely before entering sin why does this necessitate that once they've sinned they're now set on a path Theoretically, you could have created a universe without the need for that, because if you were starting with them to act freely, I mean, perhaps you see what I'm saying here, and this is a little bit of a straw man. I'll admit to that, but it just doesn't make sense to me that you would start in in a system where people are freely allowed to choose, and then it's so suddenly taken away from them. And I get
0: what you're saying. It's a it's a bit incoherent. It's a bit of a discontinuity.
1: Yeah, it's it's also the the generationalness of it doesn't make sense. So you could, for example. Well, let me say this. It's it's very hard for me to see how people of the twenty-first century are culpable on behalf of the sins of Adam and Eve mm. it's it's very metaphysical in the way that this is described as an analogy if you asked uh, a set of the population today this is less topical than it was maybe a couple of years ago but um, reparations have been discussed in certain Segments of the the Democratic Party in America, and oftentimes the arguments that are outlined are very simple. Well, I don't have ancestry going back to the period of the slavery in the U.S. Why should I be culpable? Why do I need to pay? My, you know, let's say they did. I, I did have you know family here, but they weren't slave owners. Why do I need to pay? And. I can't see people working out of, you know, a two hundred year system of of that. It's just strange to me then that, you know, again, this is not entirely analogous because one of these is is of a different nature. But it's not how we operate. We generally don't ascribe guilt to people for something that they didn't commit because they were not the ones that committed it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'll admit that's, that is something in transparency, I'll admit, I've struggled with. Um, I think, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it,
1: it, it could also be answered in different ways. So, so typically in the Augustinian or Western tradition, people... Uh, you're helping me. I appreciate this. You're saving me. <laughs> no problem. I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll add more context and then maybe you can, you can put out your thoughts, but... In, in this tradition, generally it's, it's what you've described: inherited guilt, where from generation to generation, starting with Adam and Eve, we're passing along our sinful nature. In Eastern Christianity, we believe in original sin, but we don't believe that it's passed from Adam, sorry, Adam and Eve and down. There is a fundamental change in the construct of reality. That is, it unleashed the reality of death. And with death comes our mortal nature. And a mortal nature creates a, an inherently sinful and um, fallen way of being. And so, in combination with the principalities and uh, of the spiritual realm, that is. Satan and his underlings. Christ had to send himself, God had to send himself in the form of the Christ to give us a way out, salvation. And ultimately, Christ coming back is us conquering death, which is conquering sin. My point of this is, it's to me, this was groundbreaking because it's not necessarily... In terms of overall idea all that different but semantically it is a slight change that makes it much more at least to me plausible I know that there are a few kind of small side independent Protestant churches starting to adopt this way of thinking but outside of it there's a lot of hard questions to answer so if you're Calvin if you have a uh, a nature That is inherently sinful. In your two-week-old baby, and you die. That's it.
0: Mm.
1: So, it's uh, I'm you know I'm not John Locke here, but you uh, you have to be able to explain certain things like that, and I think it's it's very hard to do.
0: Yes. Now, I, I do like what you brought up with, uh, with that sin brought death into the world. Uh, I, I do think that, and yes, that is why even if you're an infant, you can experience a natural death even though you haven't committed sin of your own. Because, because that's what the fall did. It corrupted the universe. But I think something else that's important to realize is that we are responsible, and this is another contradiction in Calvinism, right? We are responsible for our actions. So I think but on the other, the sin that needs to be conquered is from within. As Jesus taught, you know, to pull the log out of your own eye before pulling the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The idea is that the the thing to be conquered is from within now to your point christ's resurrection and his victory on the cross is a very important it's very important component of the atonement and it's an important part of christ's return that that our bodies will be resurrected and we will have glorified bodies and that the presence of sin will be eliminated so this is kind of just a broad
1: question. But why is reality the way it is? So, for example, generally in the, the Reformed tradition, there's a, an appeal to God's sovereignty. If I look mm-hmm. at something like penal substitutionary atonement, God has created a vision of reality with people created in his image and depending on how we're going to argue this, whether it be Augustine or Calvin, they've either brought upon them a sinful nature or the sinful nature was chosen for them but because of that, God then has to send himself to save humanity from more or less the problem that he created. Now Again, I'm making a bit of a jump depending on which side we're, we're arguing here specifically. But really what I'm gaining at is why did it need to be like this? Why couldn't it be like something else? There are, given the characteristic of um, God's infinite knowledge and being, there's an infinite number of scenarios that could have gone along with it. What are the general thoughts about why this one was selected? And I'm talking about this specifically through the reformed, uh, the reformed framing of the question, because mm-hmm. in all major sects of Christianity, the question is, is actually quite a bit
0: different. Mm-hmm. If we're going to go with logical arguments, something I would appeal to is Euthyphro's Dilemma. I, you, you're probably familiar with this. Is it good because God did it or does God do it because it's inherently good? And if you pick the first one, it's like well then good is arbitrary But if you pick the second one, it's like well then then God isn't really sovereign then Then there's some outside entity which dictates what good is If there's some entity that determines good that is not God is that entity not then, by definition, God or a co-God? Or so it's almost like you have some kind of polytheism, where where it's like you have God on the one hand and then this amorphous truth on the other. But as the debate goes in Euthyphro's, the solution is that is that God God has chosen what is good. But what is good is entirely according to God's nature. So in a sense, it's almost as though God is bound, but, but he's not bound by any external force. There's nothing external that demands God do things a certain way. Nobody's giving him counsel. But God is bound by his own nature. It's the same way that the scriptures say that God cannot lie. Wait, but he's omnipotent. Of course, he could physically tell a lie if he so desired, but his nature assures that he will not so desire. So it's not that God was metaphysically incapable of ordaining the universe in another way. It's just that what we have was determined by God's nature that that he might most fully reveal the riches of of his grace and that he might fully most fully display all of his attributes to the enjoyment of the saints. So that's an interesting question. What
1: what can you say about the delayed revelation of reformed christianity its groundwork of course is laid by augustine but we've got another a thousand to eleven hundred years before we have calvin starting to really pick up the pieces and put things together Mm -hmm. what about i mean in terms of conduct things are going to be different but in general we had a thousand years of an undivided church acting in, in a certain way, conducting themselves, worshiping. And we had another 500 years of a split church. But it takes quite a bit of time until we actually get to the Reformation and from the Reformation to, to a Reformed church. And if, if you took someone from the apostolic era or the patristic era and you told them some of these tenets about God, they would be entirely... Ignorant of them, of course, and this makes sense because I've just explained it wasn't a thing. Do you think they were simply misinformed and hadn't revealed certain truths, spiritual truths about God? Or how do you answer that question in general? The development of Christianity can be a little bit shaky when you have to exclude people from not being in uh, apprised of certain of the more intricate elements of it that were later revealed, if that makes sense. And if so, why did God presumably choose that to be?
0: Yes. And that's, that's another good question. So something I would say is that I wouldn't describe the reform period as, I would not describe that as revelation. I would think of Revelation being the risen Christ appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus and giving him a full revelation of the gospel all at once. And I would say that was unique to the apostles. And then the foundation of the church is the apostles, the, the revelation of the gospel. But finer points of doctrine, that, that can take a really long time to develop. I do think that God has ordained different denominations to a certain extent so that all of his attributes might be most fully revealed. So some denominations emphasize different attributes of God over others, and i think god has designed it this way because he is simply so multidimensional and and one finite person simply doesn't have the tools to to fully comprehend him if you get what i'm saying and also finer points of doctrine it can take a long time to really tease those out and to rigorously discuss those through councils and things. The Council of Nicaea, where where we get this doctrine that, that most Christians really take for granted, this doctrine that Jesus is, in fact, fully God, that was thoroughly established at the Council of Nicaea in the year 313. I mean, that's almost three centuries after Jesus lived and died so i would say that dealing with false doctrine and teasing out teachings is nothing new now of course it's different when we're dealing with peripheral doctrines that are not essential to salvation there are many christians who are not reformed who are born again and an essential doctrine such as the deity of christ but my point is that Debates around these things have been raging for centuries. In fact, several of the epistles were written to combat heresies. Tertullian wrote his works against heresies. So so we see that doctrine takes a long time, even the establishment of, of the canon. Now, if you look at the writings of the early church fathers... It's clear that there were a certain set of Paul's epistles and the gospels that they all trusted. But but it took time for that to really be solidified and to come in the neat form that we see today.
1: Yeah, I in general I hear you on this. But I I slightly disagree with 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 two things. One that it's not specifically Revelation. Maybe it's not. It does appear, though, that it is changing the nature of God and changing the nature of salvation.
0: Hmm.
1: Maybe it's not the, the, the most precise term, but it's a very seismic shift. What we do have, though, as you alluded to, the Council of Nicaea is a set of ecumenical councils, seven of them that defined and outlined many of the tenets of the church. And again, as you noted, these were processes of essentially defending against heresy. That's really the reason for the creation of the creed, as you alluded to um, the nature of Christ. Arius at the time, it was disproportionately the biggest and most influential heretic. And it took the coming together of hundreds of bishops to develop and put together a coherent version of the doctrine that is the creed.
0: And of course, there's the story of Arius getting punched in the face during that process. I don't know that
1: one. Please do tell.
0: There's the legend that that, I don't know if it was Athanasius or if it was someone else he and Arius were they were debating so rigorously and they were getting so worked up because there was just so much passion around these doctrines that in one version says Arius took a stick and I I mean excuse me Athanasius or whoever took a stick and whacked Arius on the head and another version says he just clocked him in the face but but I think Whether or not that legend is true, it's just—it's designed to tell us just how passionate these bishops were about doctrine. That was that was a digression. That was just a little tongue-in-cheek, funny thing to
1: point out. Well, I'll continue the digression for a second here because I've actually read that Saint Gregory of Nyssa—he writes that he cannot in any way escape. The constant chatter and debate, and general unruliness of even the, uh, the equivalent of the working class population of the time, the theological arguments were so intense that they were everywhere, and there was they were unrelenting, no break. I've always looked back at his writings on that concept and compared them in a in a contemporary sense and tried to figure out. How we went from being a society where you couldn't go to the market without coming in contact with some type of theological diatribe to—I uh, forget the exact term he used previously—but Sunday-only churchgoers, uh, but more specifically, one-hour Sunday-only churchgoers. Hmm. Anyways, it's something I've been reflecting on, and I don't have an answer answer to,
0: but yeah. Well, for sure, society in general has become much more secular. Although I guess if I think about it, the early Roman Empire wasn't a sec- it wasn't a secular society, but it was one where it was not uncommon for there to be periods of heavy persecution of Christians. I, I definitely think that it's just been a cultural change over the years, but yet there are those who or wanting to discuss these these finer points, you just you just need to find the right place. But I also think there is a point where where you can where you can talk about this too much to the point where it becomes head only Christianity. It's a matter of moderation. It's just a matter of. How can we make sure we have both the head and the heart engaged in following Christ? Yeah, that's,
1: a, that's an interesting point, and it's actually something I've struggled with. I have an extreme tendency to over-intellectualize and overly process certain issues, and my priest had to be upfront with me about that and, and tell me that at a point it can fall into the category of a, of a useless passion. Mm. And uh, a useless passion is something that, in essence, draws you further away from knowing and becoming like God. That could be, again, being super into the, the academic side of theology, or it could be following politics, or it could be your favorite you know, series on Netflix that you're uh, a super fan of or whatever. Everything is good in moderation, or something like that, but you can't can't commit too much of your time in a certain direction, or again, it becomes head-only Christianity. I do think, though, there is the line to be drawn, like how we started the conversation, that should not discourage people from regularly Examining and re-examining their faith. A hundred percent. There should be a a very healthy level of doubt and continued periods of self-reflection. Otherwise, you're kind of just uh, you're you're kind of just stagnant in the faith and exactly a unassuming expositor of it by nothing more than random chance.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're told very clearly the greatest command, it starts, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your might. And to your point, that's something that has been lost in the American church. And I think a reason for this, well, for sure, anti-intellectualism has been a trend in evangelical circles and I think another reason is that theology can be very difficult. The gospel is simple, but doctrine and theology are complex, and we live in a culture where we do not like to do hard things and i I definitely fall into that fall into that pit also, so that's just another theory as to as to why there aren't the theological debates as St. As Gregory described in his day. There's also ideologues and people that represent
1: a perspective that don't want you to know about it. This is kind of the, the, the classic uh, submission to authority that happens in American Christianity, at least, Oftentimes the ministers are trained in a very specific tradition, and even if they're in a non-denominational or generally more vague denomination, they're representing a certain perspective based on their training. If you're only exposed to a window of Christianity, it's hard to evaluate the entirety of its system. Now, maybe you've researched elements of it and found that it's the most plausible, but there are certainly the sadists like John Piper, excuse me, uh, not a big John Piper fan. It slipped out. Um, SMH, but they push you in a certain direction and, uh, they're almost unassuming air quotes. And then people are, are just revealed to it. I mean, we've talked about this, right? Like with Jimmy Swaggerter, uh, Joel Osteen or whomever It's basically what they find They stick with it and it's not to say that these people don't have the ability to re- reveal the um, The truth and power of Christ But it's it's still a limited window and understanding of what Christianity is now don't get me wrong I'm not going to disrespect somebody or disagree with them if they've thought through the, the wider framing of it and they determine that that's it but even even inter-christian in an in, inter-christian sense you should still be thinking critically and examining if if this is um, you know the, the the correct system and you have for example talked some about your story I know on previous podcasts about how um, you had gotten yourself into Jimmy's movement and in a certain capacity, and through a long period of self-reflection and learning, you found kind of a different path. I really appreciate stories like that because it signals to me constant curiosity and thinking. Um, I don't like I don't like people that are generally unresponsive. In uh, their pursuit of truth, even if, if even if that's in a Christian sense, I'm rambling now, but you're, you're getting my point here.
0: Yeah, and I, I can definitely sense in your story that's something that that really bothered you about your upbringing, and and that's valid. Seeking out the truth—that is, one way or another—it will get you closer to God, and that's what it all comes down to. Had I not thought critically about Jimmy Swagger's Church. I would not know Christ the way that I do. And by the way, that is not to glorify myself. It it's by God's providence that that I found this website and that and that God led me to the truth. That's definitely the reformed in me coming out. But but it's not I. It's Christ in me. But yes, another thing I wonder is if and and I'm especially and I think about this living in the upper Midwest is that one reason I started this podcast is that I have a lot of these questions, but I don't always know how to articulate them or I'm not always up for rigorous discussion or, or something that might be perceived as causing conflict. I know that's another thing that especially in the part of the country where I'm from, that, that that is an issue. So I also think that, you know, if you're going to church and you look at the pews around you, I'm willing to bet that that your fellow parishioners have a lot of the same questions that you do, but they just don't know who to ask or how to articulate it, or or they might just be too shy to to reveal what they're going through. Most definitely. It's uh, it's also a problem
1: of resourcing, especially in these big churches. It's very difficult to find enough people. And there's, there's too much demand for the supply of people capable of answering these questions. Not to say laymen can't answer these questions, but sometimes it's, it's nice and effective to have trained clergy explaining certain ideas and concepts. But if, if I could, maybe I, I will continue on with my, my narrative here and moving from my evangelical stage into the least exciting and most painful would be my time as a nihilist. So I leave Christianity, pretty much denounced it, while attending a Christian university. That's right. I'll have you know, the vast majority, not all of them, I had a couple of devout friends, but the vast majority of my friends by the time I left Bethel was like a small community of uh, atheists or general non-believing people. And uh, it's its a bit of a strange concept, but it makes sense, is these people kind of find, find each other because... You are an extreme outsider at that point um, at a place like Bethel, but by my sophomore year, I pretty much embraced <clears throat> the self-described title as a nihilist. I again, I I generally broke down Christianity uh, through the three problems that I previously mentioned. And then I started to fill in the gaps with uh, the usual spot suspects that you may expect. Um, I, I was and I still am kind of a, uh, an active reader a listener of Sam Harris. And before he died, Hitchens, um, it spiraled quite a bit from there. I got into more of a a strictly existential or nihilist route. So that would be, um, Sartre, Camus, uh, Nietzsche, Hume, Emile Chiron, David Benatar, and so on. And, uh, Thomas Ligotti, I should say as well. Thomas Ligotti has this beautiful book. It's called the, the conspiracy of the human race. And, the entirety of it is talking about how existence as such is just a gigantic mistake and he then goes on to detail in about 500 pages how suffering outweighs the the positives of life it's very depressing but again as we talked about So
0: you were you were being facetious when you said it was a beautiful book
1: Precisely yes but again, like it's like we were talking about at the start, it's the the confirmation bias. When you started to dig yourself a a, a, a trench to bedrock, you can speed up the process by making yourself feel better by believing and reading people that share your perspective. But I also got into kind of some of the more practical, some of the more practical practitioners of, of these th- styles of thinking. So people like David Benatar are the uh, he's a, a philosophy professor out of um, University of Cape Town in South Africa and his claim to fame is really advocating and advancing the philosophical arguments for nihilism. Oh, sorry, not nihilism. Anti-natalism. And it's almost a way to incorporate incorporate extra I don't know Applied ways to practice this philosophy, but he had a a book. It's called the human predicament, which was very influential to me at this time and He argued maybe the most depressing thing I've ever read still to this day and that is humans are capable capable of temporal meaning that is they can have a family they can have a good career they can have uh, friends and hobbies but at the end of the day, it's entirely futile because they will die within about a hundred year period. After a couple of centuries after that, no one will remember them and their existence will almost be as if it never was. Hmm. In, in other words, there that is sounds,
0: no... It sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes only, only without God. It is and there's no
1: silver lining because he continues on to say there's no... ex. Uh, Um, terrestrial meaning or cosmic meaning that is Um, and then it, it even extends into things like the afterlife and he spends like 60 pages outlining why the afterlife would even one as described in the Christian tradition would be of utmost suffering and so you leave this like Really the only good option here is if I didn't ever exist, but I do Mm -hmm. exist and now I have to figure out how to uh, How to work myself out of this hole, but at the time I really wasn't interested in doing that and As you might imagine being this type of person can be very uh, Hard to be around you generally aren't chipper and joyful people You have this swarm of negativity oftentimes that you're trying to transfuse into other people. I think Mm -hmm. after that, I kind of just probably two years, three years, something like this, I've pretty much given up on ever trying to find a way out. And I firmly believed I would never never be religious again in any capacity. I just Mm -hmm. found it entirely untenable at that point. And I professed it as such, and I was an active, active critic of evangelical Christianity in particular.
0: But God had other plans.
1: That's right. So at the start of quarantine in March of 2020, I was on the New York Times book review, reading through some of the weekly reviews, and I stumbled across a promo by an Eastern Orthodox philosopher and theologian, the great David Bentley Hart, and he had published a book the previous year entitled That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. And this is probably the greatest contemporary treatment on the question of heaven and hell and who will go there and for what duration. He outlines a number of incredibly tightly packed philosophical arguments against the idea of uh, eternal conscious torment. I uh, uses exegetical arguments and so on. The point of this is it kind of gave me a very small little display of hope because I never heard of something called universal salvation. That is the idea that all men shall be at some point reconciled unto god and that was of course my second critique of evangelical or protestant christianity and so i had just found out that there's this entire entirely different way of thinking and i came to learn that though it's not the official position of the orthodox church many many people And a disproportionate amount compared to their Protestant or Catholic counterparts believe in universal salvation and a lot of this has to do with the way that the church and its doctrine developed which is basically entirely outside of the purview of uh, Augustine and Many of the the early church fathers were either um, they had alluded to it, or or were explicitly universalist. So this is Gregory of Nyssa, Origin, Saint Maximus, Julian of Norwich, Isaac the Syrian. The list goes on and on. Uh, Augustine actually writes that in his time, the preeminent position or most popular position within the uh, the clergy and the laity was that of the universalist position.
0: Interesting. And, I, I never would have guessed that.
1: Yeah, it really, uh, there's, there's um, a lot of, there's a very uh, excellent scholar, Ilaria Ramelli, who is a, a patristics expert, has detailed, it's like a 1600 page book. It's called like the history of apocatastasis. And it, <laughs> apocatastasis, it's a, uh,
0: It sounds like one of those obscure ingredients in a protein bar. (laughs) Or gum. Apocatastasis Extract 5. True. (laughs) Uh,
1: But it's the the Greek term uh, to convey the idea of universal reconciliation. Um, And she outlines all of the the church fathers and in what capacity they defended universalism. And... In collaborations with the colleagues, then they get into the modern era. So the great um, um, George MacDonald, Bulgakov, um, von Balthasar—they they, they outline pretty much the history of uh, of the universalist thought and system. And it's been very fiery set of debates of late um, with with David Bentley Hart writing this incredibly influential book Um, but other philosophers too like Thomas Talbot he has won the inescapable love of God and uh, Ed Fesser he's a a Catholic scholar sort of I don't know if I would call him that but sort of and uh, Michael McClymond a what is it the gospel coalition contributing writer and professor of American Christianity Attempted to write a opposing viewpoint of the history of universalism, very much outside their skill set, by the way, and their expertise. Um, so, anyways, if there's anything such as it, uh, such as a academic fight or feud in a popular sense, this is it. But getting back to the narrative here, sorry, I kind of got myself
0: way lost in a rabbit hole, but. <laughs> All good. We like rabbit holes here at wrestling. <laughs> okay, good. So
1: David Bentley Hart. I find myself very impressed by him. And I I come to learn that he's an expert, a true expert on a on a a number of topics. And I start to read his critique of Atheism in general, he has two really great books, one, Atheist Delusions, which is basically a a 2,000-year argument, or sorry, an argument that extends over 2,000 years, refuting much of the contemporary mistruths about religion and Christianity in particular. For example, that Christians in the... Fourth century were uncouth barbarians pillaging and killing everybody and ruining all of the great marketplace of ideas there's nothing new under the sun precisely yes, and the next one is um uh, the experience of God um, it's probably the most influential book I've ever read on understanding who or what God is. He spends about 400 pages strictly giving a definition of God as such. And from there, I kind of use that as a springboard because he mentions this writer and that writer. And after not too long, I had a stack of 40 books mostly on Orthodox Christianity. And by the time I got to fall of that year of 2020, I'd kind of made up my mind that I was going to make it a make a go at Orthodox Christianity. Now it's a it's a big kind of transition. It's probably the highest church and the most novel. As we've talked about before, the second you walk into an Orthodox church, you realize it's like nothing you've seen before in any other
0: church. Um, the result be... <laughs> of that is that's a callback to episode one when I compared your faith to Hindu paganism. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's, um, there'll be icons spread across all of the walls and um, uh, on um, entering the uh, the altar. And on the ceiling, there'll be a dome with Christ Panko Krator, And there's generally not chairs in a lot of churches because you stand to the entirety of every service.
0: I know that was a big, that was when I went inside of an Eastern Orthodox monastery, when I was in Greece, I go up to what appeared to be a chair. I sit down in it and, and it was so bizarre because the armrests were like over my head. And it was, it was such an awkward angle. Yeah. then someone had to come over and explain to me that those were for standing. and I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. So I sort of stood up and I'm like, yeah, now I don't look like quite as much of a dork but but I digress
1: yeah, it's it's like that though like you know I, I've been going now um, kind of in fast forward here. I spent another six months really learning and especially focusing on some of them more. Uh, logistical or practical elements of it like for example when you walk into an Orthodox Church you usually venerate um, icons and you'll cross yourself it's can be intimidating it's like where do I you know where do I uh, kiss the icon our 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 deacon in my church we we took uh, catechetical classes and it was like you don't walk in and put the kiss smack on Jesus's lips If Jesus was in front of you right now, where would you kiss them? You would kiss them on the feet, if not his feet, you would kiss them on his hands. But we're not, you know. So it's stuff like that. It's the learning curve is immense, and even now, about uh, faithfully attending for about a year, it's sometimes I'm still like, what do I do? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's an extremely intricate system. In one with a liturgical calendar that's full of events Um, for example the Sunday starting of Great Lent we have something called Forgiveness Sunday and all of the parishioners in the church will line up into a gigantic snaking line and you will go individually and Confess forgiveness to each of your fellow parishioners, to the priests, all of the clergy, and in return, they will ask for forgiveness of you. You then hug the people and go on to the next one. It's like, I understand why, because Great Great Lent is an incredibly uh, important period of forgiveness, and this gets you into the mindset. If we are to uh, be forgiven, we must learn to forgive others this is a, a central teaching of Christ but I can tell you that experience is, is very daunting when you have you know people that are, are cradle Orthodox or people that grew up in the church and then you've got to go in and kind of figure it out on the fly so in other words I'm just giving a, a bit con a bit more context here on why it took me so long to actually go boots on the ground in an Orthodox church but all have to say I've been attending now for, again, about a year, and I'm currently a catechumen. So, uh, becoming a catechumen is the church's official moment of prepare, uh, the official designation of preparing you for baptism. And historically, this takes at least one to three years. One year at the minimum presents to you an entire liturgical calendar. Some people need a little bit longer to work through some of their their previous beliefs. For example, I have a, a friend at church that was a, a practicing sorcerer, very involved mm-hmm. in the occult and and paganism and things of the sort. And so he's on a very long process right now of trying to work through some of those very kind of uh spiritually weighty past realities of his life so he's probably more in the range of three years um myself being somebody that was a, an active you know i don't want to say enemy but i frequently denounce the church i have my own problems to work through and so I'll probably be baptized within another 6 to 12 months, something like this. But it's it's probably best or colloquially described as an engagement, right? So making sure that you're a good fit for the church and the church is a good fit for you. And it's a very big deal. And you don't take communion until you're a baptized member of the church. I think this is pretty common in even Protestant circles, Lutheranism, for example. But... Still got a long road ahead of me. I certainly have the intellectual side accomplished. Now it's just been a a large project of getting the spiritual side down and learning what it is to be an Orthodox Christian. And the the biggest difference is the doctrine of theosis, which is, the embodiment of St. Athanasius's idea, God became man so that man may become like God. So we orient our lives in such a way that we are continually trying to become more like God. And this looks like a lot of different things in the church. So this could be fasting. More than half of the calendar days we fast. Um, uh, as we uh, as we worship, we stand. We don't sit down. This is showing reverence uh, to Christ, the Bride, and it's uh, you know it's it's alms giving, it's prayer rules and consistent practices practicing of them. These are not rules. These are spiritual tools to help you become more like God. If you're fasting. Especially during the, the fast of, of Great Lent, which is a week's long, almost exclusively, for lack of a better term, vegan fast. It connects you with God. And again, you don't have to, but why wouldn't you? Hmm. Um, now, of course, if you're a... Uh,
0: so it's not do this or, or go to hell. It's not... What you're saying is that it's not adding works to God's grace.
1: Correct. Yes. It's saying, okay, I have a very busy life. I'm disconnected from God. I'm very caught up in my life. If I take this away, this is a reminder and a tool to draw me nearer to him. Mm. And it's very individual in some ways. It's so there are guidelines, right? You know, so it's during the Lenten fast, you don't eat this, this, and this. That doesn't mean that you have to do this a lot of people actually participate in half capacity dietarily or um, in terms of duration so maybe they'll go every other day or they'll do certain foods or other foods Um, if you're a, a d1 football player you probably aren't going on the Lenten fast it's up to your spiritual father which is generally the priest of your your parish to advise you on what what makes the most sense and um same things with prayer rules you know so for example i have three allotted periods uh, a time per day where i stop everything and pray this isn't to say i'm not praying at other times some people have very very complex and uh time demanding prayer rules they're more spiritually advanced and developed than i am um so it's about building and and um learning and not pushing yourself beyond what's possible or reasonable but I think there is um, this idea I've, I've, I've definitely struggled with friends that say well it seems a lot like works and again the emphasis is this is not a requirement it's a tool
0: very good and yes as a as a Protestant I too have tools that I've incorporated into my life we it seems like just about everyone does. And I'm thinking about the teaching of Romans 14 when when Paul is saying, there is the one who abstains and the one who eats. And, of course, that verse is used a lot to say, see, we don't add works, because do not let the one who who abstains despise the one who eats. But this is a two-way street. Do not let the one who eats has despised the one who abstains this is very much this is the understanding like who are you to judge the servant of another so i definitely think that that there is value to that just to get yourself grounded and remind yourself the cost of discipleship and that's also the context of the verse in corinthians where paul says Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You can have, you know, once again, when you're coming into this knowledge, like, oh, these are these are guidelines, these are tools designed to help us. When you first obtain knowledge, it gets to your head. So so that's when that's why the apostle said that that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's it's not an anti-intellectual verse, it's designed to say this knowledge of spiritual practices of the liberty that we have in Christ. He's saying, don't let it get to your head, because it's so easy to get cagey and to look down on brothers and sisters who believe differently. I, I do have another question for you, Eric. So. Sure. As you know, the second of the Ten Commandments is says do not make to yourself a graven image in the Old Testament it was very much the idea that God is not made of hands and this is reiterated in the New Testament when Paul is preaching in Athens and he says we do not serve a God who is in need of anything who is confined to a temple so how how does the church what does the church say in regards to this commandment that How is it different, all the icons and—is shrines a proper term? It would not be, no. Okay. All the icons, how would that be—how would the church say that's different than making a graven image?
1: Yes. So, first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between what, uh, what what the commandment is saying and what the greater subtext is saying and that is images of God as such. The Orthodox Church is firm in in their understanding that no image of God should be created. As far as images of Christ, though, and those are, again, painted up and down the the churches, uh, inside, on the ceiling, they're everywhere. There are also other... Uh, icons within the church, often of the Theotokos, the most holy uh, virgin um, mother of God. Mary? Yes, Mary. There are icons of the saints, the apostles, of the archangels, Gabriel, Michael, not Lucifer. <laughs> At least, uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. Uh, a lot of the times, the images of Christ conquering hell, there is a depiction of Christ trampling, trampling down Satan and his... his
0: under- but you do not
1: venerate Satan. Of course. <laughs> uh, at least I don't. I don't know of any Orthodox <laughs> Christians that do. There's probably uh, some offshoot, some, some capacity that does. In any case...
0: Better keep an eye on that friend of yours you were describing, lest he fall back into his old ways... I it's I true. don't I don't mean to put you on blast if you're listening. Sorry about that.
1: You won't know who I'm talking about. There's more than one. Uh fair enough. But anyways, we believe that the the icons are written to convey spiritual truths and this has been a practice since the apostolic era. Now, there is always a question, okay, well, I get it. You, the, the depictions of Christ, maybe it makes sense to venerate those um, and, and such. But what about the Theotokos? What about the saints? Well, veneration is not worship. Veneration is to show reverence. So when we uh, venerate these icons, we're not going up to them and worshiping them in any capacity. It's showing gratitude and respect. And a lot of this has to do with the mystical tradition of the church. You won't see any realistic depictions in these icons. People sometimes describe them as uh, cartoonish. And certain Orthodox uh, churches even take it differently. If you've ever seen an Ethiopian Orthodox icon, I mean, they're very, very distinct looking. And they look like some type of, uh, you know, literally a cartoon And the idea here is that the church is mystical in its nature. It's outside of the scope of reality. And these icons are not meant to describe reality as such. They're meant to describe spiritual truths. And Hmm. it's actually remarkable the number of people that have discussed and and talked about their conversion stories simply from finding revelation in the beautiful depiction of, of oftentimes Christ in um, in icons, in particular the Panko Couture. I think that the church has spent a long time defending the use of icons, most notably in the 9th century, St. John of Damascus, they finally overcame the iconoclasts, or the heresy of iconoclassism, the idea that icons should not be uh, in the church, and this is actually, in some ways, uh, majorly influenced by Islamic culture and belief um, of, of the seventh Did you century.
0: say it's heresy, iconoclasm?
1: Iconoclasm, uh, according to the Orthodox Church, is heresy. Yes, because uh, icons are a, a central way of how the church is conducted and um, uh, what is conducted and how worship uh, of, of Christ is conveyed.
0: Uh, and so on forgive me but when i when i hear the word heresy that seems to him that to me suggests that if something is heretical you cannot be a christian and believe this that's certainly a problem of heresy um
1: the the definitions can be a bit loose but what I would say that the definition of heresy in the Orthodox Church is is something that the Church does not believe—a uh, belief outside of the official doctrine of the Church.
0: Okay, I guess that would that would make sense for a definition in a more in a more centralized higher church. There's also unquote. there's
1: also heterodox beliefs, right? So you might say universalism. Is heterodox. It's not necessarily heretical. Um, I'm trying to think of another good example. There is a line. So, like Protestant, most pro the the Orthodox Church. You're not going to like this, but the Orthodox Church has not condemned any elements of Protestantism as uh, heretical or even a council.
0: No, no, anything but that. (laughs)
1: Except for one offshoot, and unfortunately, that was the Reformed tradition. Um, because because they think that it changes the nature and characteristics of God to a way that is incompatible with what the church professes. And they don't find that in other sects of Protestantism, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, and so on. Um, Man, wow, I'm really getting picked on here. Yeah, You know what? I'm going to continue to pile on. I'm sorry, it's not personal. (laughs) But they make you go through... A special period of recanting if you are coming from a reformed church there's like a list of beliefs that you have to that you have to denounce and recant um, in the presence of priests before you're allowed to be chrismated or baptized um, because of actually other other religions as well for example if you're coming from Islam um, or taoism or or whatever but um dang it, it makes sense though there's actually a lot of history to this it's i don't want to say it's entirely the nature of of reformed tradition there was a bishop in like the 17th century that a forged letter was written by a group of very fiery Calvinists and published under his name that appeared as if the Orthodox Church was sympathizing with the the reformed tradition. And so then they kind of
0: sounds like, sounds like cage
1: seizures to me. Well, yes. So, so that's kind of the reason why it's like, they had this huge PR crisis, the Orthodox Church. So then they have to come out with a formal denouncement. Um, So it's actually more of a product of historical circumstances. I'm not going to say that the church agrees with the uh, some of the doctrine of Reformed theology, but I think a lot of the reason why it officially was condemned by the church is because of that. They had to not save face, but they had to set the record straight because like, I, I think the Presbyterian church would, would probably want to do something similar. Uh, I guess there's not really th- authority as much, but you know what I mean, right? Like, yes. So, um, But the church also doesn't say that people outside of the Orthodox Church aren't going to be saved. The church speaks about the free gift of salvation within the church. It doesn't say evangelicals or Presbyterians or Catholics aren't going to be saved. Um, God is merciful and just and as, as we've mentioned before many Orthodox Christians undoubtedly will go to hell and many Reformed Christians or uh, uh, um, Baptists, Evangelicals, Anglicans, so on, will go to heaven. Um, okay, that's a relief. Yes, yeah, so it's it's not, you know, I mean, there, there is... Um, I, I said this to you the other day, a very prominent uh, patriarch of the church operating in Moscow right now that is incredibly contentious and has been outright condemned by the vast majority of orthodoxy around the world. Um, there's not a lot of faith in in this individual and in, uh, their actual practicing of of Orthodox Christianity and being a, a true expositor of the faith and somebody that's been
0: changed. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I would feel about rogue evangelical pastors. Most definitely. Um, so again,
1: you know, an analogy that I'll give that personally I fall into is not that I believe in you know, everybody has their own spiritual truth and you know, every direction points to God's So That's not what I'm saying. I think Nicene Christianity, people that uphold the general tenets of the faith, true to the creed, for example, the triune God and the nature and characteristics of it, Christ, uh, Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection. People that fall into that category are... Not enemies, but they are people that fall under different kind of categories of the church. But they all live within the same house and they're all in many ways working towards the same goals. And that's why the Orthodox Church pretty much exclusively is um, interested in interfaith dialogues and working together on relief projects uh, uh, in a humanitarian sense except for the Episcopal Church. They actually ceased communication with them back in the 80s. Uh, Do you know this is kind of a stupid thing but do you know who Harvey Milk is? I do not. So he was a a prominent gay activist politician in San Francisco. Don't fact check me on this. This is like 30 or 40% correct. But There's like a movie that came out in like 2008 called Milk, uh, details his life, it's it's whatever. The Episcopal Church in San Francisco put an icon of Harvey Milk in the entrance of the church so that people would then come in and venerate him. That was kind of um, created a big falling out with the Orthodox Church and they cut off communications. Um, It's not exclusively that event. It's just the Episcopal Church has proven time and time again that they're entirely willing to abandon Tradition and fall into the the postmodernist deconstruction of the current era. It's it's actually reasonably common. I, I mentioned him earlier, Dale Martin, to accept two truths: a spiritual truth, which is the resurrection of Christ, and a, a physical truth, which is that Christ died and did not. Uh, he died, did not descend into hell, and did not ever. Um, rise again so, so you,
0: it's it's possible to believe two directly contradictory facts at once is what it sounds like yes
1: yes again it it can lean very I, very I,
0: I i would love to see him try to square that circle well there's a there's a
1: if you care to read it it's it's a slog of a book it's called biblical truths it's kind of his magna opus and he explains it as my version of Christianity is one that's entirely postmodern, deconstructionist, intersectional, Marxist, feminist—something like that. Yeah, and just, those are
0: his; those are his terms.
1: His categories, correct, and he kind of slings them together into this uh, huge uh, recherché mess of very selective doctrines. And then he goes on to talk about how all of his. Colleagues at uh, the Yale school, the Yale Divinity School share a lot of them share his position and they all go to the same church in New Haven, Connecticut It's basically like saying Okay, reality doesn't make sense to me in a in an atheist or agnostic sense so What pieces can I kind of randomly throw together into a bag and shake up and? Come out with something that kind of helps me along the way Um, very strange but yeah, he's an interesting uh, exegete. He definitely he has a free course on uh, YouTube and Yale Open Courseware on the uh, historical critical method, and using that to explore the New Testament as not scripture. Um, it's an interesting way to learn more about the text, how it was created, the differences between them. For example, at Bethel, I'm sure you took some survey course on the New Testament or the Old Testament. I forget what it's called, but that's being viewed not through the historical critical method. It's being viewed through a, a faith-based or theological way. Um, it's just an interesting or added element of, of the faith that's, that's worth exploring to an extent um, in any case.
0: All right. That's yeah, there are a lot of different beliefs floating around out there and and yes, I do have to add that I would affirm that there are there are Catholics and Eastern Orthodox who are who are going to heaven. I do want to throw that out there, and there will even be the few Pentecostals that sneak in there. <laughs> Obviously, that's a joke. I, most of them are avid Christ followers. but Also? Yeah, I just, just had to take that little jab. Go ahead. Amazing polyglots, too. They're great <laughs> with languages. Oh.
1: <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's impressive
0: stuff. Oh, I, I was right in the middle of it. But, well, I mean, as long as you have an interpreter present... That's that's the way Paul said to do it is by having an interpreter present, so that way everyone can benefit from it. Since the gifts are designed to benefit from the church,
1: that's right. All right. Well, should we yeah, call it uh, call the show? You,
0: yeah, I think you got to get going. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on. This was yeah, this was a great blessing, and. Uh, yeah, it was great to get to know about your theology and, and to answer your questions. You you had some really good questions. I I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Very glad that uh, I got this opportunity and we could catch up and hash it out a little bit.
0: Yeah, this is great. And with that, I will say, soli deo gloria.